0: Good morning again. Like I said earlier, my name is Caleb Brazier, and I am uh, one of the pastors here at The Grove. So excited you guys are here with us this morning as we continue our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. So to get us excited about 2 Corinthians, uh, we had a little strobe light party earlier in the service, um, and we will see how that continues throughout. Um, So one of the things, I do want to take just a second before jumping into the sermon, because this will be something consistently that we'll uh, be able to Get the joy of being able to experience as we hear children hurting isn't the right word but on their way uh, to their classes there are some churches that feel like children are better um, seen and not heard um, that we should remove them have them kind of siloed in different sections listen one of the beauties of a church is whenever we hear life and we hear children we hear rustling pieces of paper and coughs and whispers that aren't quite whispers but the children think that they're whispers And one of the things I hope that the tone of our church is we have children here in our services up until uh, the sermons uh, as we've started to shift towards that. We want children worshiping with their families to be able to look up and see. Uh, their parents, their friends worshiping Jesus, realizing they may not be engaging with every single thing along the way, but that's beginning to then spill over as they see a heart of transparency, they see a heart of worship. And we believe that that's going to be molding them more and more to learn and trust and follow Jesus. And so we want to have them here. Uh, Even in imperfect, sometimes disruptive ways, we believe that disruption is a grace of God. As a sign of life continuing to come into this church. So it is a good thing as we hear them and they've now made it to their classrooms uh, to just acknowledge um, that every single week as we hear that, that is an act of grace and a tangible reminder um, of God's grace in our lives and in our church. And so we love our kids and we love our children. We want them to be able to be here and see and follow Jesus. But as we now uh, continue then in our study through 2 Corinthians, we started last week uh, and we are continuing now uh, in chapter 1. So we'll be in chapter 1. This morning, verses 8 through 11, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. If you grab one of the Bibles next to you, that's on page 1023. And if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to take that home with you. That is our gift to you. We're continuing on through 2 Corinthians, because one of the things that marks us as a church is we are expository preachers. So what that means is that the majority of time, we're just preaching chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, So we're going to be taking uh, 2 Corinthians, walking through it up through next May. Um, We want to, in essence, hold a microphone up to God. Let him speak to us. Uh, And so we are making our way through 2 Corinthians. So a couple quick notes on 2 Corinthians. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church Uh, in this city called Corinth. So Paul was an apostle. He saw Jesus. He was sent by Jesus to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So he writes with that kind of authority, and he writes to this church in Corinth. Now, it's 2 Corinthians because this is the second letter that we have from Paul to this church. So Paul has given a lot to this church. He helped start this church in Corinth. He continually checked back on them. He wrote them letters. He visited them. So this is further on in his relationship to them, and so he's wanting to continue to encourage encourage them, to remind them of the gospel, and help maybe kind of where they're starting to stray, kind of correct them. In particular, there are these groups of these people called super apostles that were coming into the city. And these were people that were incredibly eloquent. They were very gifted communicators. Paul was not. Paul was kind of dull and boring to listen to. Wasn't an attractive man. He's kind of like George Costanza from Seinfeld. That's how I picture Paul in my mind. Uh, so he wasn't engaging, he wasn't uh, attractive, but, but here come these super apostles that were incredibly gifted. And in, first, uh, in the first century, they didn't have Disney, they didn't have the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they didn't have Disney World, they had different forms of entertainment. One of the main forms of entertainment was to go and listen to good public speakers. It's one of the main ways of entertainment that they would have. So they'd build these huge theaters, there'd be a number of things that they would do there, but including coming and hearing these orators that would come. And these super apostles were uber-gifted at communication. And so they also then were charging for what they were doing, as they were bringing the gospel. And the church in Corinth was a newer city. Corinth is a new city. It was built in about 100 years up until this point, so it was newer, but it had a lot of wealth, a lot of huge buildings. It was already a very influential city in the Roman Empire. So it was kind of like a modern-day or an antique uh, version of Las Vegas, if you want to kind of try to picture what a city would be like today. There was a lot of debauchery Uh, it had grown quickly there was a lot of wealth there and so Paul is writing then to this church that's kind of the context and so Paul begins the letter with this interesting way reminding them that there is going to be affliction that comes to your life this is kind of opposite of what these super apostles were saying they were kind of teaching hey it's all about ease and blessing and if you become rich then God's favor is on your life I don't know what kind of church background you come from, but you may kind of hear that sounds similar to some messages of what uh, so-called Christians would teach today. But Paul's coming to say, no, that's not the truth of the gospel. And so he begins in verses kind of three through seven and tells them, hey, affliction is coming your way, and affliction is actually a good thing. It's sharing in the afflictions of Jesus. It's overflowing because what we see is that when we are afflicted, God is the one who comforts us. He comforts us in all of our affliction. So Paul begins with kind of that high level, there's going to be affliction, but God is your comforter. He is the father of all mercies. He is the God of all comfort. So that's where Paul begins, again, kind of this ethereal, high-level idea. Now in verses 8 through 11, he's got to give a very specific example of those kind of afflictions in his life. So that's where we'll be here this morning, then, in verses 8 through 11. Paul is now talking about specific uh, affliction and trial and suffering in his life. So we'll read here verses 8 through 11 and then jump in. He writes to the church in Corinth. He says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a terrible death, and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again. While you join in helping us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. So what I want us to see here, I want us to look at three different things here uh, this morning. We're going to see that God uses these things in our life. He uses despair that shifts our trust. He uses deliverance that builds our hope and he uses prayer that changes our lives. So it's kind of the mile markers as we're going through today. But I want us as we start to ask some really honest questions, right? Because we can read these few verses and there's a lot of hope in here. I don't know about you, but you read it. Paul's talking about being completely overwhelmed, being desperate, right? Anybody ever been in a situation where you felt overwhelmed? Maybe I'm the only one. Where well, you felt desperate. And Paul is saying, yes, we were there too. So much so, we thought we'd receive the sentence of death. This is what God would then break our trust in ourselves to put it in him. He has delivered us from such a terrible death, and he will deliver us. Right, so much hope there. But what is Paul saying? Is Paul saying that yeah, God delivered us from this trial and affliction? Therefore, I know that every trial and affliction that's going to come in the future, he will deliver us again. I can say that confidently. Is that what Paul is saying here? That every single trial that he walks into, God will deliver him. Some people read it that way. I think very wrongly read it that way. Because all we have to do is hold that up against church history, and it doesn't hold any kind of water. You look at the Christian martyrs throughout the centuries. That's all we need to look at and begin to ask, was that true for them? Did God just forget this promise? Could he not deliver them from what they were going through? I don't think that's the case, but we don't even need to look that far. We just look at our own lives. Has there been a situation, some trial, some affliction in your life the loss or demotion of a job. The death of someone close to you. A spouse that left you and divorced you unrighteously. Maybe you've been slandered publicly. And then the ships fall and God doesn't seem to deliver you from that situation. Is this promise not true? Right? We, the, we don't get our jobs back. The loved one doesn't come back. Your spouse hasn't come back asking for forgiveness. And your reputation was never restored. Is God not coming through on this promise to deliver you? I want us to look then and see what God has to say here through Paul in these verses in 2 Corinthians 1. Because I think that there are three things that we will see how God uses them. Again, despair, deliverance, and prayer. And we'll answer that question of what Paul is talking about. So first, I want us to see despair. So Paul begins in this state of despair in verses 8 and 9. He's talking about despair, and we see this particularly this despair that shifts our trust. Why do I put it this way? Well, look at the situation that Paul's in. Again, verse 8. Look back at verse 8 in the first half of verse 9, and listen to the words that Paul says. He said, I don't want you to be unaware of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed. Well, how overwhelmed, Paul? We were beyond our strength, person that's asking, so that we even despaired of life itself. We felt like we had received the very sentence of death. That's the situation that Paul is in. So we don't know exactly what situation Paul's referencing here. Some people think it may have been uh, from Acts 19 when he was in Ephesus. We don't entirely know. We don't know if there was an actual sentence from the law that was putting him to death. We don't know if it was just his circumstances that made him feel like he couldn't get out of it. We don't entirely know, but I think that God doesn't need us to know because he didn't tell us. What's important is to look at the situation that he's in. He was overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed. And that word is kind of this image. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Father of the Bride Part 2, but there's this one scene where Martin Short's carrying Steve Martin on his back because Steve Martin had like eight sleeping pills, and so he's passed out. And Steve Martin's trying to carry him, uh, or to be carried by Martin Short. I don't know if you know who Martin Short is. He's not the biggest, strongest man in the world. So he's kind of this small guy and he's sitting here carrying him and with every step he gets weighed down more and more until finally he just falls and Steve Martin's on his back because he can't carry him. That's honestly kind of the best image of what Paul is giving here in the Greek. He's saying, I'm trying to walk through life but this affliction on my back is weighing me down with each step. It is now beyond our strength and I'm flat on my face with Steve Martin on my back. So Paul's trying to say here he was completely overwhelmed Despaired of life itself. We felt that we had received a sentence of death. That's Paul's situation. So I want to just pause for a second and just say, How comforting is it to know that Paul, Mr. Apostle Paul, guy who wrote half the books of the New Testament, guy that we kind of sometimes hold up on this pedestal, right? We hear stories of when Paul, when he was stoned to death, they thought he was dead. They left him outside the town. Paul then gets up. He's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back and preach the gospel in that very town. We're like, Paul, who are you, man? I can't relate to you. And we kind of hold him up and act like Paul does no wrong. But friends, I want us to see this morning, Paul felt overwhelmed. Paul felt desperate. Paul looked around in his life and he's like, man, I, I, don't, I have no idea what to do here. And so if you came in here this morning with something in your life where you feel overwhelmed or you feel desperate, I hope you see that there is a place for you not only in the Scriptures, there is a place for you in this church. We are not a church of people who have everything together. You know why? Because that person doesn't exist. They're the people who lie about having everything together, but there's no one that has everything together. And so if you came in here this morning with some desperate situation, welcome to the comfort of the cross because we don't have it together either. And there is comfort in knowing that we are not alone. We are not the only ones. That we are not on an island kind of broken like the land of misfit toys that don't have it together. And all the good toys are out there with the children. No, the entire world is a land of misfit toys. And that's why God has come to redeem us, restore us, and one day ultimately bring us back to perfection. So this is where Paul begins in saying, I am completely overwhelmed. And I find comfort in that. But then I find it to be interesting. You hear Paul describing his situation. And he's saying, we were completely overwhelmed. We were beyond our strength. We despaired of life. We felt we had received the sentence of death. Why? I can just imagine being in Paul's situation and asking the question, God, why would you do this to me? And when are you going to get me out of this? God, look at all the work that I've done for you. I'm the apostle Paul. I remember, we met on the road to Damascus. We had that convo. You told me to go take the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm trying, and now I'm about to die. Why are you doing this? Again, we see over and over again in the scriptures people coming to God with that kind of honesty. Just read the Psalms. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to wait? You're going to keep giving my enemies everything that they want, but then I'm sitting here suffering? And we all ask that question, Why? And we may not always get an answer to that. We see that in the book of Job. Job came and asked God, why? God, why have you given me all of this and taken it all away? And God didn't give him an answer on this side of glory. God could have, but he didn't. Job now, with glorified eyes, may see, but in this life we aren't given a promise that God will answer that question. But one thing we do see is some of the things that he might be doing within our suffering and within our trials and within our affliction. And this is what Paul says now. In the first uh, verse, in verse 8, in the first half of verse 9, he describes his situation. But the last half of verse 9, he gives the purpose for that situation. So again, look at verse 9 again. We felt we had received the sentence of death. Why? So that. All right, pause. So that. Really important word right there. Paul is very precise with his words. It's one of the things I love about Paul. Every single word matters, especially his conjunctions. A man would have loved conjunction junction. Uh, He would have ate it up. And so Paul here really employs the use of conjunction. So here he's giving these words, so that. He's about to give the reason for why he's going through what he went through. I received the sentence of death. Why? So that. What was the so that? Verse 9, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God. Paul, Mr. Super Apostle, Mr. Writer of the New Testament, Mr. Bringer of the Gospel to the Gentiles, had fallen into a point in his life where he began to say, God, thank you, thank you for all you've done. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to kind of begin to take it from here because I've kind of got the the way that this goes. I'm starting to get some experience here and I can begin to trust on my, my strength, my gifting, my abilities, my clarity, my reputation, Whatever it might be, we don't entirely know, but we know that he was starting to trust in himself. God then introduces this affliction into his life. Why? To bring him to the point where he realizes, I can't do this. To stop trusting in myself and to trust in God so that even if I die, I can trust in the God who does what? Who raises the dead. Death wasn't even a barrier for Paul. That's the point that this affliction got him to. And he would have never gotten there had the affliction not been there. And so Paul steps back and he goes, God, thank you. Thank you for bringing me through this so that I can now be here at this moment in trusting you. Paul saw the affliction as a gift. Paul saw it as something that was bringing him closer to his Jesus, bringing him closer to his God. Paul had a different perspective than a lot of us do. He certainly has a different perspective than I do often. It's just so easy for me to fall into this rut in which I believe that my life, my goals, my dreams, my, my kind of trajectory is about me and my comfort and my ease. And what do I want in my life? What do I want from my job? What do I want from my family? What do I want my life to look like? And I worry that, that a lot of kind of the Western American dream has seeped its way into my heart and into our churches. As we hold forward, not a goal of bringing God's kingdom here on earth it is in heaven, but God, hey, God, this is the life that I want, and could you, we'll, we'll pepper you in along the way, and could you help me achieve that? Because whenever that's our mindset, when ease and comfort is our goal, anything that butts up against that and begins to rub against that is a negative. It's an enemy. It's an enemy to our dreams, and we want it out. I don't care, God, what you're trying to do. I just want this out of my life. And God in his kindness is sometimes bringing us through affliction to bring us to a point to say, listen, your life is not about you. It's not about your ease, your comfort. I have something far greater for you than that. There is coming a day when you will feel the greatest joy that you could ever imagine. A sin will be removed. But even in this moment, when you're walking through trials and affliction, there is joy and there is peace for you. If you press into that and trust me, then there is if you just try to control yourself and trust in your own abilities. And God sometimes in his kindness brings afflictions into our lives to blow them up so that we would stop trusting in ourselves and trust in him. Corey ten Boom was a Holocaust survivor, so she went through her fair share of affliction. Family members who were killed by the Nazi regime. And she said this. She said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. And friends, what Paul is trying to say here to this church in Corinth and to us today is that there are going to be times where you ride through dark tunnels in your life. Don't throw the ticket off and go, let me try to get myself out of this. Sit still. Trust the engineer as he takes us through all of this for our good and for his glory because he might just be wanting to break that self-reliance in our hearts and bring us to a dependence on him. So perhaps God has you in the midst of an affliction this morning to bring you to that same point, to stop trusting in yourself and to trust in him. To stop trusting in your career growth and your career plan and to trust in Him. To stop trusting in your family and to trust in Him. To stop trusting in your retirement plan and to trust in Him. To stop trusting in a boyfriend or a girlfriend and to trust in Him. Friends, what we see in this text is perhaps the most gracious thing God could do in your life right now is to blow up our self-reliant spirit by introducing us to overwhelming despair. That God, like so many things in our life, must first hurt in order to heal. I had a number of surgeries in high school, the worst of which was a a shoulder reconstructed surgery. If any of you have had surgery before, you know. What what you do, you go and you get drugged up by this guy. You get wheeled into a room while you're unconscious and this really sharp knife cuts you open. It's not the most pleasant of processes. But whatever it might be, whether it's surgery, whether it's cancer that for the surgeon to do their job, they first must hurt us in order to heal us. We have to be cut open for the the cancer to be removed. We have to be cut open for the ligaments to be repaired. And friends, God is the great surgeon as he then introduces sometimes these afflictions into our lives to be able to remove the thing that is keeping us from him. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said that I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Friends, it changes our perspective when we understand this, that God isn't just punishing us. He's not just torturing us. He is shaping us into the image of Jesus, and he wants to use us. And he and his grace will do anything that he can to be able to bring us closer to him. And so God introduces despair in order to shift our trust away from ourselves and to him, and sometimes overwhelming despair so that we would be fixed on him. But he doesn't leave Paul in that despair, does he? We see that he actually delivers him. And this gets us to then our second point, this deliverance that builds our hope. So Paul says after this, yes, this was the purpose of this overwhelming despair, but look at verse 10. He has delivered us from such a terrible death and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again. So Paul's writing this letter because he's not dead. He didn't die in that situation, whatever it might've been in Asia. And Paul says, God has delivered us from that terrible death. And he will deliver us. Well, what is Paul saying there? Again, is Paul saying, hey, from here on out, every single trial I walk into, God's going to deliver me. I know because I know, and I'm Paul, and that's what's going to happen. Well, that wouldn't be true for us, and that wouldn't be any comfort for us. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. We see it, I think, most clearly in 2 Timothy 4, verse 18. Paul says something similar. He says, The Lord will rescue me. It's that same kind of word, deliver. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work. Well, why is that interesting in 2 Timothy? That's interesting that Paul says that in 2 Timothy because that's the last letter we have from Paul because he gets his head cut off not long after that. He dies. The Roman state kills him. It's like, well, Paul, you just said the Lord will rescue you from every evil work. And here in 2 Corinthians, you said that he will deliver us, and we put our hope in him that he will deliver us again. So, Paul, which is it, man? Were you just kind of hoping, kind of crossing your fingers? Like, oh, hopefully God will deliver us. Did God forget his promise? Did God go and try to intervene, but Caesar was just too strong? He's like, oh, I tried, Paul, but couldn't stop the sword, sorry. I don't think that's what's happening. I think it's partly because we have such a warped view of what Paul is talking about here. The second half of 2 Timothy 4:18, which I didn't read, he said the Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. When Paul's talking about deliverance, he's not just talking about an easier life. Paul's talking about glory. Paul is talking about heaven. Paul isn't talking about, hey, I want seven more years of kind of uh, finance-free kind of angst and anxiety. Paul's saying, I want an eternity of sinlessness. And when I get to that, that is deliverance. And every single step along the way that God delivers me in this life is a further confirmation that one day he will deliver me to the next. And so I look back and I know Paul's writing in the church in Corinth. I'm standing here because he has delivered us. And every single one of those deliverances gives me an even stronger hope that one day he will deliver us again. And that we go forward even if we die, which he does after Second Timothy, his deliverance comes because God brings him safely into his heavenly kingdom. That every past deliverance is a foreshadow of future deliverance. Right? It's like every time I go to Chick-fil-A, I go through the drive-thru, and you know what? I don't even check the bag anymore. I know they've got my sauces in there, the exact amount that I asked. My order, It's not going to have the things I didn't want on it. You know why? Because for decades now, Chick-fil-A has always gotten my order right, and it is their pleasure to do so. And maybe you have a different experience to that. Maybe, you know, I'm going to get some emails and say, listen, here's the point I had, the issue I had with your sermon. I've gone to Chick-fil-A, and they always mess up my order. And maybe so. But I'm just telling you from my experience, I then from here on out in the future have complete trust in Chick-fil-A. Now, I won't name names like McDonald's, but there isn't that case for me in every single fast food chain. But because of the past faithfulness of Chick-fil-A, I then can be confident every time in the future they're gonna continue to deliver. And friends, that's what Paul is saying here, that God has delivered us from such a terrible death. He has shown me his faithfulness and his kindness. And I can have confidence that he will continue to deliver us even if we die because that death then actually ushers us finally into the best deliverance that we could ever imagine. That past faithfulness builds future hope. Let me tell you what your great hope is in this life. It is not that God will give you ease. It is that God will give you himself. And that one day when we do die, then we get him fully. And we get him without sin. And so often it's only through affliction that we realize our great need of him. Goodness, I was talking with two people this past week who were sharing with me incredible trials they walked through this past year. Miscarriages and a father-in-law who died suddenly and adopting a 16-year-old son and just a, a number of things that, that kind of all happened all at the same time and molding families together and, and conflicts and uh, just difficulty for the past year. And both of these people, you know what struck me? As I talked to both of them, they said, you know what, we've gone through more this past year that maybe I can remember in my life. But strangely, I felt closer to God than I ever have before. And I find that not only to be true in our lives, I find that to be true of what Paul is saying here. That in our trials and afflictions, we finally reach that point where we go, God, we can't do this. And I need you. And it's there that God, and he comes and he comforts us. And we feel that closeness to him. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone will suffer greatly. It certainly doesn't mean that you need to go out and look for suffering. So don't leave here and be like, all right, well, if I suffer, I'll be closer to God. So how can I suffer? That's not what the text is saying. There are some people who follow Jesus that won't have as hard of a life as others, and that's okay. What this does mean that if you've ever felt how Paul felt, overwhelmed and in desperation, I want you to see this morning that there is both hope and there is purpose that while our pain may be great, it will not be wasted. And the great hope of the Christian life is not found in a full bank account. Friends, it's in an empty tomb. And it's there that we find our hope, that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, that we were called to live, that each one of us fell short of. And then he died a death that we deserve, taking our sin in our place and taking the punishment for our sin there, bearing the full weight of God's wrath for the punishment of our sin in our place. And that every single person who believes, if you trust and follow Jesus, then his perfect life that he lived is then given to us. It's credited to us. That we then walk forward and communicate and relate to God righteously, but it's not because of our own righteousness. It's not because of a self-righteousness. It's an alien righteousness, a different righteousness that's been given to us. As we then now relate to God as a father, as we who were once enemies are now children, and that Jesus, then after he died, he didn't stay dead, but he rose again. Showing that that payment that he paid on the cross was accepted by the Father. And that we then have now a hope that is not dead and buried in a tomb in Israel, but it is alive and it is waiting to one day come again. And that sin and death right now, while they may throw all of that they can at us, it will not last forever. It will not follow us to heaven. O oh, death, where is your sting? death where is your victory that's what we now get to say because christ has conquered the grave so because of that reality i know that god has delivered me he has saved me sustained me and brought me to this moment and i also know that he will deliver me Friends, there is a great comfort in the truth that you will not die a moment before god intends it will not catch him off guard but God has a plan in all of this that we won't see on this side of glory. But one, way we will, one day we will get there, look back, and see what our good, good father was doing in his wisdom as he was teaching us to trust him. And I know that in that moment, even whenever I die, that it's then I know that God will ultimately deliver me. One day when that day comes for me, death will be my greatest deliverance. See, death becomes a strange thing for a Christian because it's already been defeated. It doesn't have power or any word over you. It doesn't have any authority over you. It has no sting. And I love it. One of my favorite people to talk to, um, she's um, a lifelong missionary. Her husband passed away 15 years ago. And in talking with her about her husband that passed away, I always find it interesting that she never says that her husband died. She never said that he passed away. She always says he went home. He went to glory. And I hear that, and I'm so encouraged because I go, that's exactly how we're supposed to think about it. Jesus never called it death, he called it sleep. He's like, hey, Lazarus, he's sleeping. I'm gonna go wake him up. Paul's writing in church at Thessalonica, and he says, For all those who have fallen asleep, that's the view of death for a Christian. And I worry that sometimes we take in society and we take in culture's view, and it feels so final. It feels so ending. But Jesus says, no, that's not what death is for you. For the Christian, death becomes a chauffeur, honestly, to take us where we finally want to go. That's what it does in our life. Whenever we close our eyes finally, it's then that we experience our greatest deliverance. And so death becomes a strangely warm thing for a Christian. That's why Paul was able to get to a point where he says, for me, to die is actually gain. It's a good thing. Why? Because he understood that is my deliverance. That is my hope. Now, does it hurt? Absolutely. Does it sting? Of course. It's not the way it was supposed to be. And we miss the ones that we love here in this life. But friends, in Christ, we have a hope that it is not final. All the pain, all the tears that we experience will not last forever because we are just asleep right now that God one day will come and wake us up again. And so God has delivered us. He will deliver us and he will deliver us again. This is the hope that we have. This is the hope that Paul has here in verse 10. As he says, we have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again. He's not talking about just having an easier life. He's talking about finally going home into the kingdom of God forever. That's the deliverance that he's talking about. So for Christian martyrs, for our lives in difficulty, that hope and that promise is true for us. God may deliver us from those moments, but even if he doesn't, We can have trust in him knowing that he is still working in and through it. And so it feels to me almost like there should be a period right there at the end of verse 10. Like, Praise God, that is our hope. Paul's been talking about affliction and comfort and now specifically in his life, despair and deliverance. And it feels like there should just be this period of all that God does in our lives, in and through trials and afflictions and delivering us in the hope that we have in the resurrection. And it should just come to an end but it doesn't. It continues on with verse 11. It brings us to our final point here this morning. Quickly, verse 11, Paul says that, I have hope that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. Now, I wanna wanna end here because Paul ends here, so we're gonna end here, but I wanna end here And asking the question, look at that last sentence. He says, many will give thanks on our behalf for what? What are many people giving thanks for? They're giving thanks for the gift. Many people will give thanks for the gift. So the question is, what is the gift that Paul's talking about? What is that gift? Well, the gift that Paul's referring to there is deliverance. He's saying that many people will give thanks to God delivering us. Why? Because it will bring hope, right? You hear stories of Christians around the world that are going through difficult times and how God delivers them, does that not bring you encouragement? Paul knows that. And Paul's saying when God delivers us, it brings thanks and hope and courage to many. And so many people will give thanks for the gift. Well, how did that gift come to Paul? How did deliverance come to Paul? This is where it gets interesting. Paul says that that gift came to us through the prayers of many. And so we see here that the reason that God delivered Paul is because people were praying for Paul. And You go, wait a second, well, God is sovereign, and he he is going to do his will whether or not we want to or not. Well, sure, that's right, but God not only ordains the end, he also ordains the means. And the means in which God accomplishes his will, as we see, one of the ways is through the prayers of his people. And what I will say confidently is that if we don't pray, God will not act. Well, how can you say that? Well, because the Bible says that. Well, that doesn't quite fit with my theology. Well, you need to change your theology. We need to be biblicist and asking the question, yes, God, you are going to do what it, is that you, what it is that you want to do. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, the psalmist writes. Amen, praise God. But we also see is the prayers of his people then are the means in which God accomplishes those ends. And what we see here in particular is the deliverance that Paul experiences, the gift that Paul experiences comes through the prayers of many. Because God is not just interested in just doing things individually on his own. He's bringing his people in together and saying, hey, come be a part with me. I'm calling you into this mission as well. And so that whenever we come together and we pray both privately and publicly We begin to pray that God would do incredible things and then he does those things. He gets that much more glory. And God listens to the prayers of his people. And so I don't want God to not move in and through the Grove Church simply because we didn't ask him to. I don't want God to not move in your life simply because you don't ask him to. And so would we see the importance that Paul puts on prayer, the importance that the Holy Spirit here puts on prayer, and begin to see and let it drive us then to prayer? It's one of the main reasons why we're doing this night of worship tonight. We do it every three months. The main piece that we do in these nights of worship is we just come together and corporately pray for the lives of one another, for the ministry in this church, for the ministry in the individual's lives that are happening here, And for the ministries of other churches in our area, in our state, and around the world. Why would you do that, Caleb? Because it matters. Because we want the gift of deliverance to come to people and to ministries through the prayers of the many people of the Grove Church. And so we want to be committed to prayer. And so come tonight. It's informal. It's casual. Sunday mornings are our main teaching time. But Sunday evenings, when we do these nights of worship, it's our main family time. And so come as we gather together and we pray and we ask that God would move as people share what's going on in our lives and then we then come together to pray for them. So we'd love to see you tonight at four as we try to live out what Paul is writing in this verse, that we, through the prayers of many, not through the prayers of a bunch of individuals, but the prayers corporately of many together as we publicly cry out for God to move, believing that prayer changes things. And so we gather together as many to pray as one because there are things that we cannot do unless we first do that. Prayer is not a last response. It's not a last resort. It's not like, well, I can't do anything else, so I guess I'll pray. Prayer is not a last resort. It is our first response. It's the most powerful thing that we do. It's the most powerful thing that you do is we acknowledge, God, we trust in you. We need your help. Would you come and move because we are weak And it's in our weakness then that God's is made strong. And so we do it because we have a faith in God that's not only powerful, but a God that is caring. The God of all comfort, the Father of mercies. That even in overwhelming despair, we can know that our pain will not be wasted when beyond our understanding, he is teaching us to trust him and having a firm hope that one day he will ultimately deliver us from brokenness, sin, and death forever. Let's pray.